Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a founder, you know, that has done it so many times and he has been involved with so many different startups that I'm getting dizzy just from knowing the number. You know, we're talking about eight, you know, think about eight startup companies, eight startup journeys, really incredible. We're going to be discussing today, building, scaling, financing, exiting. He's done it multiple times, you know, and we're talking, you know, companies that he's built in the hundreds of millions, you know, incredible, inspiring conversation that we have in front of us today. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Robert Bagheri. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. So originally born and raised in Iran until you were age 18. Give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there? Yeah, so I uh, finished uh, high school in Iran, in Abadan, the city that used to have, or still does today, the largest oil refinery. Uh, left Iran in 1974, right after high school, went to Florida, went to Miami, and went to school there. And uh, I majored in electrical engineering. And fast forward to 1980 is when I started my first job at a company called MMI Monolithic Memory, a chip company. And so that was the beginning of my career. So tell us about why engineering out of all things? You know, what, what, what got you into problem solving to begin with? Well, it's very interesting. First of all, I always, uh, my background in even high school, I was very good, strong in math and physics. And so that's one, just naturally, I gravitated towards uh, uh, the science and engineering side of things and physics and everything. Uh, but the other thing is also cultural. You know, back in the days when <laughs> we left or grew up and uh, got ready to go to school, uh, college, uh, everybody either had to be an engineer, a doctor, or maybe a lawyer at best or a professor in a, in, a, in a university. That was it. So that was kind of ingrained in us <laughs> from childhood. So. Engineering, especially coming to U.S., engineering turned out to be the easiest path because of the language barrier. So it did not need as much English as, let's say, it did if I went for law school or some other things. So now, out of all things, here with microchip, you know, back in the back in the eighties, and I don't want to, I don't want to date anyone here, Robert, but uh, you know, been a, you've been around for a while now. Yes. Back in the eighties, there, you know, when you were involved with microchip, how was it like to be part of? of a journey that it would uh, unfold into an IPO, you know, which happened, you know, later in 93. How was that? Yeah, yeah. So we, certainly the, uh, the uh, it was a great experience for me. Uh, it was right after my, I want to say it was my second job after MMI that got acquired by AMD in uh, 1986. And right about then I went to Microchip. It was a startup of sort because it was a, a spinoff of General Instrument. And uh, I was a workhorse on the technical side of things. I used to go, I was single. I go and go to work at 6 a.m. and don't get home till 12 midnight. And that was my routine there for about three years. And right after that, you know, you went into logic devices, but literally, you know, almost immediately that same year, you joined IMP. You know, what, yeah. what, what made you to go through these, uh, you know, switches, you know, so quickly? Well, it was, in just in every single situation, I was recruited. 
uh, I was never actually looking to leave a place that I was at. And I was recruited by somebody that actually I work with first at Logic Devices. He did, was happened to be at IMP and was saying, look, we could really use your help if you can come out and join us. Uh, of course, they gave him a much bigger challenge. And the challenges were technical challenges. One of the major areas of focus for me when I was technically relevant was device physics. So I used to do a lot of work in semiconductor device physics. And that's why I was recruited to go there. There was a lot of yield problems, as I did, by the way, have at microchips, similar challenges there at IMP. So uh, it was interesting. And we you know, did go there and join the team and we helped uh, do a lot of things together. And very similarly, right after that, you joined Soran. And with Soran, you know, the company ended up doing an IPO as well. So I'm wondering, like, on those companies that you were now experiencing that, you know, were rocket ships that would go IPO, what were some of the similar patterns that you were encountering there? Well, you know, in almost every situation, you look at these guys are doing something new, something different, something disruptive. For example, Zoran was one of the earliest that worked on uh, JPEG, MPEG, you know, the image processing. Uh, so the challenges, of course, of always bringing something new uh, with very high risk always. It's perceived high risk, and uh, you have to go out there and, and convince people why the new way of doing things, why this new solution versus what they were doing. Or sometimes they didn't even have a solution. So in every case, it's almost always you're bringing something new to the to the customers, to the end users. And uh, there's a challenge of proving uh, the concept to show them that it's gonna work better than what they had before. It's gonna be cost effective. Almost all of them have similar, similar challenges. The initial sort of inertia, the resistance to uh, adopting a new way of doing something, it's, it's very common across all of the places I've been to, including today. So then right after this, you know, it was S3. You know, it was a little bit uh, different, you know, in terms of um, how situation would unfold, because this was the immediate segue into surf technologies, which could be technically be viewed as the first day of rodeo, really as a startup founder. So can you walk us through how the uh, events unfolded for you to really feel that you were ready to uh, take a challenge like that and go at it on, on your own as a, as a real, you know, founder? Great. Now, be a, a co-founder. So what I... Uh... Uh, I learned obviously a lot at S3. I, there I end up uh, working with some very, very bright people, uh, many who I consider to this day of mentors. I learned a lot from them. And uh, so uh, S3 was a, a great training ground for me. And I happened then to work very closely with the, with the founder there, which was Dotto Benetau. And, uh, and of course, Dotto was an entrepreneur by then. He had that was his startup number three. That's why S3 is <laughs> a graphic engine company. I was, that was before you know, ATI and NVIDIA became who they are. S3 was the king of the hill for graphic chips, for PC and gamings and things like that. And so then we, uh, and that, that, it was during that tenure that we, that we, I got engaged with Dado on Surf. And that's when we went there and myself and a few others of the members from there that went there and basically started SURF. And uh, I went to SURF and took the role of the VP of Operation and Central Engineering. And how would you say that uh, things changed at this point? Because, I mean, at the peak of the valuation for SURF, you know, we're talking about $480 million, you know, uh, 
How did it differ, you know, like perhaps the experience from having been, you know, more on the employee seat to now being more on the co-founder seat and writing an IPO, you know, like this one? Well, it's a lot of responsibility, obviously. You know, there's a lot of much harder work, the, the, the load, the responsibility that you have as a, as a, as a co-founder or as, as, a, as an executive uh, member of the, the, the organization there. Um, this is really 24-7 kind of a, a commitment that you have to make and you've got to work through every challenge, every issue that come up to get the company to where it needed to get. We had some major milestones that we set out for ourselves to go uh, deliver on and so that we can go to IPO and, and that's what we did. Again, it's just a, it's a huge amount of work. It's a, it is basically no rest till you get uh, to where you need to get to. So the next day, Rodeo was a Synverge. Now, with Sunverge, you know, something that um, happened that was really interesting is that it was more of an M&A, more of an acquisition versus the IPO, you know, in terms of a liquidity event. So what were you guys there doing with Sunverge? And, and also, how did that lead into an acquisition? And, and what was your main takeaway from that type of, uh, of outcome? Well, the Zenverge was an interesting experience too. That was doing uh, transcoding, audio, audio, video transcoding. This is where to uh, be able to basically, to put it in a simple terms, is creating the, 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 the encryption and decryption capability for content, for video, audio content. And so that went on for quite some time. We had some great opportunities for a different type of exit. But uh, I think one of the major learning at Zernvich for me was as to learn when to exit and when to do it. And there were some great opportunities we had that we did not capitalize on. And uh, when we did do it, it was an MA. It got acquired by Freescale. When there was Freescale, was Freescale later becomes NXP, right? It got acquired. But that was, uh, was a great technology. We had some great customers in the consumer electronics space. But I think uh, we as a team, as a management team, uh, failed there to really recognize quite what the right timing for an exit for the company was where we could have exited at a much, much higher value than we ended up exiting. So how should founders say, think about timing? Again, timing is everything. It's it, it, one of the challenges the founders have. You get too intoxicated with what you have created, or what you you get you fall in love so much with it that you just uh, you almost like as we say, you know, you're drinking your own Kool Aid too much. You've got to be realistic. You got to be pragmatic. You got to look at the environment that you're in, the timing, the macroeconomic and the micro level too. So you have to uh, just know what is the right time for you to either enter into some kind of a partnership that could help you build a company because you you know many in many many cases almost every situation i've been part of you cannot do it alone you need partnership you need to work with people and the founders really need to learn and realize when and who the right partnership is who is the person that you can work with that is better aligned with your vision with the technology that you're bringing and how you're going to change things so uh, that's a, that's a lesson that is learned not by anyone can teach you it learned but just by years of doing it you know, when is the right time to, to look at things like that? So the next uh, stop in the journey, I mean, unbelievable, eh? the amount of companies is just incredible. The next stop was Eoplex. Now, with Eoplex, you know, there was a really significant shift there with the relocation and also the sale of the company. So how did you navigate, you know, these changes and what were some of the strategies that were pivotal for this transition? Yeah, I mean, Eoplex was a, uh, a company that had been founded back in the early 2000, 2001. 
and his focus was 3D printing uh, of uh, you know a number of various different devices. But then when I when I you know restarted it because it, it got fire sold, it got sold in like late in 2012 or so time frame, and about the late 12 or sometime around that time, I uh, then I was asked by a friend, by someone that actually I worked for years before, and said that hey, I need you to come in run this and i said you know what great i'll do it but you gotta let you know because the people that acquired that bought that company you know through a fire sale were not from here they were from singapore and malaysia and you know places like that and i said look if i'm gonna run this i need to run it like a startup in silicon valley and in silicon valley people you gotta acknowledge and and value the people that you bring in they, they want equity they want to be part of the game you can't just a few at the top Win everything. So I said, I will come in and we'll rebuild this company, restart it, rebuild it, and, and that's how that's how that came about. Uh, it was a great journey. It took us about eighteen to twenty-four months almost to close on eight different accounts for the technology that we developed that we productized. Something that had been going on for like three or four years before I took it over. And so through those uh, eight accounts that we were, we were able to get the product and technology uh, uh, validated and also commercialized is when then that opportunity for exit came with that. And obviously, you know, like that was a phenomenal exit, you know, sold for 200 million. So I want to talk about now your latest baby. Let's talk yeah. about Shanku. So at what point does the opportunity of Shanku come knocking and why did you feel that it was compelling enough as a problem to really jump right in? No, no, great question. So first of all, I didn't say anything about through this journey. There are a couple of times I decided to retire. So one was in 2005 after my Silicon Image uh, uh, tenure there. It was also, I know it was a public company, but for me it was like a startup because when I joined it, the uh, stock was three bucks. When I left, it was about 18. Um, uh, so I decided to retire in 2005. Then I retired, decided to retire again in 2012. <laughs> and then uh, and then again for the third time in 2016. So I was in San Diego talking to my better half, saying, honey, you know, I'm done. I think we can now go take it easy. And, uh, and that time, um, you know, that was in the retiring age for many people. And uh, so I said, all right, I'll, uh, we'll do it. Three days later, we started. I started Saku with some of my team members from uh, from the earlier engagements like Eoplex. So uh, that really came about where, you know, through the Eoplex experience, we looked at, we learned a lot what, about what 3D printing can do. And not just any 3D printing. We were really, you know, uh, we needed to reinvent, you know, what we learned out of uh, the basics of that uh, 3D printing from Eoplex uh, to apply it to something like, energy storage, batteries. So that was really, really compelling, exciting, because the problem was very, very big in the battery and still is today. And the opportunity was huge, massive market opportunity, massive problem to solve. And so that was really the challenge we took on. We decided to really come in here and change manufacturing as we know it uh, and use battery as a vehicle to develop the, the, the proper hardware and software that goes along to build a new way of manufacturing batteries. And and I guess for the people that are listening, you know, what's the business model? How do you guys make money? So the business model at Saku is for us to, we build a hardware, the platform, the hardware we call Kavion, 
Kavyan platform. By the way, Kavyan is the name of an exoplanet four billion years away from the planet Earth. And there's a reason we picked that name because Kavyan is a system that is rising up against the old uh, system of manufacturing. So, you know, the Kavyan platform is going to change, like I said, manufacturing as we know it. And uh, the, so the model is to sell the machine to and enable every cell maker out there. So we don't want to compete with people that are manufacturing cells, but we're going to help them make the cells better. Okay, so that's one part of the, the how we make money. And of course, as part of that, we provide software and hardware services and maintenance, yearly maintenance, 12% first year and then uh, 8% uh, thereafter in a recurring sense. Yeah, We also provide IP licensing to people both on the product and process side, the ingredient of how to prepare the, the material for printability. But also we have a, you know, developed as part of this, developed best-in-class uh, battery cell, lithium metal anode technology uh, that is available today to be licensed by anyone who would like to license it. Of course, this product is targeted at multiple markets. So it's not a single, you know, uh, uh, sort of a, a pointy here show. It's, it's actually using a sort of a page from our semiconductor industry. You know, that's one of our differentiation is where we come from. We, are, we look at things very differently. We're not doing the same thing, expecting different results. We have changed things and how you build the batteries, how you manufacture them. So, and that is evidenced by the result. Of, of what we're able to produce with our uh, the electrochemistry that we developed for this product that we call Cypress, which is the lithium metal anode best in class in terms of energy density, life cycle, safety, cost. And so that's, that's available to be licensed to everybody. So four ways that we monetize this technology. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I gotta tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. Now, how did you guys go about also capitalizing the business? How much capital have you guys raised to date? Well, it's very, very interesting, very good question. You know, if you, uh, we've raised very little money compared to all of the people in the, in, the, in, the, in the battery world or in the 3D printing world. By the way, we do not like to be compared 
to just a battery company or a 3D printing company, because we like to say we're neither. We are a platform company, and we're using 3D printing, of course, to help produce, like I said, batteries in a better way, enable everyone. So we, uh, uh, in terms of the, uh, the how we, uh, we, we're more like, a, in terms of, the, again, just back to the business model, we're more like an ASML applied material where we can bring a lot of functionality into the system and, and enables our partners, our customers are making sales, you know, produce the batteries in a better, better way. And uh, so in terms of how much we raise to do all of this, which is, you know, it's really unbelievable to many people. Many people even have said too good to be true, just because we've raised total of about a hundred million, just over a hundred million we've raised in seven years. And we have delivered the world first multi-material, multi-process platform machine that many said will take 10 years and hundreds of million to develop. And we've developed the best in class battery, lithium metal anode battery with that amount of money. Again, about a hundred million versus people that raise hundreds of millions and maybe even billions. So, so let me ask you this then, because obviously with the investment, it comes responsibility, right? Because people are ultimately investing in the future into what's possible. So let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Robert, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Saku is fully realized. What does that world look like? Well, here's the thing. What I really envision someday what's going to happen when I wake up one morning that there is a Kavion platform on every manufacturing floor in the world. That is what we think it's going to happen. That is what we really started this company with in mind and from day one. That was our vision from day one. And I really do believe we are ever so close to realizing that, that vision, that dream. Uh, I've heard you say as well that, you know, as we're talking about people, you know, talking about leadership as well, because leadership is very important when it comes to people. But you've mentioned that leadership is a privilege, not a right. Can you elaborate on this? Absolutely. If you look at, you know, when anytime you're starting a group or team of people coming together, working together, uh, uh, leadership is not by title. It's, it's a, like I always like to say, it's a privilege. And the privilege is that the people are putting their trust in you. They're giving you the stewardship of their lives, you know, to you. So it is not to be taken very lightly and it's not to be taken for granted. So really because of that, I always like to talk about our principles that guide us in leading people you know, in our environment, whatever, wherever I've been. And certainly more so, I want to say here in Saku, uh, we're guided by three principles. Number one, we want to delight our employees. Number two, we want to delight our customers. Number three, we delight our shareholders. And it really works in that order. I know a lot of people always say shareholders, shareholders, shareholders. But how do you guarantee the shareholders' success and return? You gotta get good, committed employees, happy employees, which translates to happy customers, which then translates to very, very happy shareholders. I want. I wanted to double click on that. Can you discuss a situation where focusing on employee satisfaction directly led to increased customers and shareholders' delight? Well, here's the thing: we have people and employees that are with us in this company especially I want to say the last two years and in the world of battery and material, uh, you know, it's very difficult to recruit good employees and committed employees. We have people that have been here with us from day one and still with us 
uh, we don't pay them as much as you know they could get somewhere else. There's not some of the big guys out there that they could hire and pay them two, three times the salary. We pay them, but they stay. They do not leave because they're one committed to what we're doing for a number of reasons. One is, of course, how we treat them. We have people when they come out here, some of them, I've heard this a few times where, Robert, you know, when I started here, when I came into this building, I felt like I came home. So people come here and they have a sense of belonging. They feel like they're part of this thing and they're part of something very big. Because we always say the things that really motivate people, it's, it's our people themselves. We, as leadership, don't really directly motivate them. Our job is to find out what that is. And what it is, what I have learned over the years, is always number one, who you work for. Number two, what you're working on. Number three is money. So this is why we have people who are stayed here. They're committed because they love what they're doing. That is the environment we created for them. And we listen to them, by the way, as to what they want, how they want it. Of course, we're not always able to give them everything because we're small startups. We don't have a vast resources, but we do the best we can to share the good, the bad, ugly, everything together. But like I said, the other one, of course, is who you work for. So people, we build a team here that really feels like a family. Everybody feels they're part of this thing. And this is why people stay and commit to work and has resulted with people that come and work over the weekend. People work around the clock to deliver something to a customer because of some that line of commitment that we made. So it's been through those kinds of execution on the part of the team, through their commitment that allowed us to get multiple investment from some of our partners. And, you know, I, lo I love the way that you order things, right? So obviously uh, people, you know, the employees, then the customer, then the shareholder. There's a similar order that you do, you know, that is more on the way that you operate as a founder. And I find that Ultimately, that is going to impact to the, the culture, right? And, and you think about that order as first your health, then is the family, and then is the job. Can you expand on this? Exactly. Look, when, and then we really truly believe that and we live that. So when we have people that come in here, I always uh, 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 speak with everyone directly. By the way, I am, uh, I am, uh, my CEO title is just a title. I am a member of the team. I have a different responsibility, but I am not above anybody. I'm no better than them. And we're all in it together. We're all the same. So I always tell everybody what I really like to do myself. That is, I want to make sure that I'm staying healthy. I want to take care of my family. And, you know, and, and then, then if I do one and two, three is automatic. Because that's what I talk to everybody about. Saying your health is first. Your family is second. Your job is third. And that means, again, people that have issues with their health, over their family, family, that's where the job is suffering. Thankfully, we don't really have that issue here. When people are, you know, they need to take a day off and they need to take a few days off and they need to take whatever time off to go take care of themselves or the family, that is what we allow to happen. Uh, and then, of course, again, people have always been responsible and committed to do what it takes to get the job done as well. But they have to be first. You, you've actually seen a lot when it comes to people, right? I mean, you've been around and, and you've seen a lot, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Uh, obviously, you know, when it comes to building your team, you know, the executive team is is critical. So I guess as, as, as you're thinking about people, you know, I'm sure that you see patterns as well, no? And especially when you're looking at onboarding folks. So what are some of the qualities that you look for when assembling a team? Well, again, so that's a great question too. This is... Part of the key ingredients to, the, in the team members, obviously the, the 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 subject matter 
expertise is needed, is necessary. They have to be relevant to the environment and the technology that we're working in. But they really have to then come in is, you know, what I always like to say, I look for signs of a, a missionary and not a mercenary. So we like people who come on, you know, who have a mission to get something done. You know, we have people that said, look, we're going to change the world together. And I want to recruit people that really get excited about doing something different, something new. And then really, and then knowing that it's going to be hard to do, but commit to it. So we're looking obviously for job skill. We're looking for uh, personal commitment uh, uh, and also the commitment to the cause of the company. Because we're not about just making money. Of course, we're going to uh, give our, our shareholders huge return. But what what gets us there is the commitment to also doing something that's going to make a difference in people's life, make things better. And our technology is certainly going to do that. We believe that uh, we're going to be uh, our technology is going to help reverse uh, the climate climate change the, through the various things that everybody talks about, because what we're doing is much cleaner, it's much safer, it's recyclable. So the people that we uh, oftentimes recruit are people that have a similar mindset. You know, they're similar skill set, similar philosophy about, about what they do and why they do it. Because doing a startup is not easy. It's very hard. It takes commitment. And, and we look for those qualities in people that are willing to really commit and give it their best to go deliver on this promise of changing the world for better. So obviously, you know, return on investment, return on impact, you know, too, which is what you're alluding to. How do you think that, you know, consciousness around perhaps what's happening with uh, with climate change and, and other things, you know, because how that has helped you guys? Because I find that as a founder too, and, and, and building and scaling a company, it's all about being at the right time in history. Would you say that perhaps having the wind blowing behind your guys' back has helped? Absolutely. Look, this is one of the best time I, I, I believe to be in the, in the sort of uh, uh, technology and environment that can help change, like I said, reverse the climate change. And, uh, and I think it, we could not find a better time because the world has caught on with that idea. Our technology, of course, is really, we believe it's in the forefront of that in terms of providing solutions that is producing cleaner uh, and, and uh, planet-friendlier pro products. And so, and this is why, again, seven years ago when we started this, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is a massive opportunity. So now all of a sudden this climate, working in the, in the areas of helping the climate is also makes business sense. It's not just for business, for climate only, but then you can actually you know, still make a lot of money doing it. So it is both the return on impact you mentioned. That is a huge uh, driver for us. That is really what drove us to start this company in the first place. But also there's you know return on investment for our partners and customers and investors. Uh, that's also there because the, the opportunity is massive. The market is just growing at a very, very high pace here. So uh, this is really the best time in the world for Saku to be where it is. I wanted to ask you then on this, you know, especially on Saku and, and being where it is and, and this and this industry and segment, how do you see, like, for example, the current trends, you know, especially in technology and business shaping, let's say, the next decade? I really think, again, this electrification, there are obviously a number of major trends are going on. You know, AI, of course, is very, very big. Everybody's talking about it. Uh, but clean energy uh, clean technology is what uh, is going to shape the uh, the next 10 years in our view. And that's what, what we think where Saku is, is going to help 
shape that and drive those change in the electrification. There's a number of challenges are still there in terms of the, like for example, in the electrification in the EV world, there's still range anxiety. There's still safety anxiety sometimes, cost and all of that. You know, uh, Electric cars are still a somewhat of a luxury. It's not something the mainstream can buy. But I think in the next 10 years of what Saku is able to do, it's going to change the world in a way that everybody can afford to have an electric car and contribute to a, hopefully a carbon-free world in the next 10 years. So certainly, we think we'll be in a much better shape from a carbon footprint than we were, say, today or no, 10 years ago. So let's say, Robert, that I put you into a time machine and I bring you back in a journey back in time. I bring you back to, let's say, the 80s or 90s, where you were thinking about maybe doing something of your own, right, in business. And let's say you're able to sit down, that younger self, that younger Robert, and you're able to give that younger Robert one piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Well, it's in all of this, if I... um... Uh, maybe in my younger year, years, I knew uh, I was doing it, but I didn't really know it. What it takes, and I said it in a certain way. Remember, I said in my early, early years, I, I went to work 6 a.m. and uh, didn't go until 12 midnight. Uh, that is part of how you measure perseverance, commitment, and sort of unwavering belief in what you're doing. So you have to, I think, if I go back and how years later I look at this, what's really been one of the major guiding principles of success, if you will, and failures, because you, you're going to learn from your failures, not from your successes. Uh, it's been the, the fact that you commit, and then you uh, nothing will, will, will shake your belief in what you're doing. You've got to believe in what you're doing. This is why I'm saying you've got to be a missionary and not a mercenary. So one of the things I've learned, don't do something for money, but do something for to how do you change people's lives? How do you help? you know, touch people lives in a more positive way. So that is what I would really go back and and I think uh, that's what's going to be a major driver of success in anything you do because you're doing it with absolute uh, passion and conviction. You got to have conviction. You know, if you don't, if you don't believe in it, don't do it. If it's not fun, don't do it. So these are things I would tell the young generation now. Hey, you know, if you're going to come in and do something, if you need a job, this is not for you. But if you want to get on a mission, this is for you because you're on a mission to help change the world. So this is, and it takes really, again, unwavering belief and conviction. Because it's hard. It's a very hard journey. It's difficult, especially if you look at it, the last seven years for us, and then especially the last two, three years with the capital market, the way it's been, it's very easy to quit. It's very easy to give up. But we don't. So, so. And I love that you're saying this because, unfortunately, the journey of of being an entrepreneur is full of ups and downs. You know, the ups are so good, but the downs are really rough and they're really, really difficult, right? Those those gray days where you feel like the world is is coming to an end. I mean, it's awful. And I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are listening right now that maybe they're going, you know, through through those difficult times. Uh, you know, I love, by the way, the quote of uh, Winston Churchill, if you're going through hell, keep going, right? So, so what would you tell, you know, those folks that perhaps are going now through the downs of their journey? Absolutely. So what I would tell them again, this is maybe Winston Churchill said, if it gets hard, it could keep going. But I would say when things get hard, innovate your way out of it. You've got to continue to innovate. You've got to continue to persevere. Yes, it is hard. And yes, it's not for everyone. So, but if you dare starting something, 
then you better finish it. No matter what obstacles you're running to, there's always a solution. There's always a way to get around those problems. I love it. Robert, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Uh, they can check out my uh, LinkedIn and look at that. And they can also uh, go on our uh, website. There's a there's an email there. They can send information to us if they like it. But I'm also available, um, like I said, for anybody who would like to reach out. Easy enough. Well, hey, Robert, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you very much. I'm very grateful. Thank you for the time you had the opportunity you gave me to speak with you, Alejandro. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.